Did you read the 1,100-page tax bill that was just passed? No? Well, lucky for you, John McCarthy and I just created the Cliff Notes version for you. Welcome to the Financial Residency Podcast, where we are devoted exclusively to the financial well-being of physicians and helping you achieve the financial freedom you deserve. This is your financial residency without the long hours and sleepless nights. Let's welcome your host and primary care physician for your finances, Ryan Inman. What's up, everyone? Hope your New Year's off to a great start and treating you right. I'm sure that the majority of you have heard that the final version of the major tax reform called the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was signed by President Trump on December 15th, 2017. This is the largest change in the tax code since the Bush tax cuts of 2001 and 2003. And while we were told during the campaign that this would simplify the tax code and provide tax benefit to everyone, this bill did not make things simpler. It's going to take some time to really go through the bill and receive guidance from the IRS for more clarification. But one thing that's glaringly obvious, this was not simpler. AMT still exists for individuals, although it was repealed for corporations and corporations do have a a flat tax now. But individuals, we still have seven tax brackets. The rates were reduced. And after all the changes, they aren't even permanent. That's the kicker is that these changes can't last beyond 10 years the way it was written. And they're due actually the legislation is due to sunset after 2025. So ultimately it's going to take months and probably years for CPAs to go through everything to find out all the tax strategies. And then they're going to potentially expire in 2025 unless some fiscal cliff thing comes out and, and they end up having to make some of this permanent. But Basically, it's going to take months or years to to go through this and find all the strategies, but be sure to keep up with all the news surrounding this new tax bill. On today's show, we're going to be talking with John McCarthy from McCarthy Tax Prep. And John has been a CPA for over 15 years, and he works with well over 400 clients nationwide. He's been a tremendous resource to me personally and professionally, and I'm really grateful that he's taken the time out today to talk with us on the major changes that were presented in the bill. So that brings me up to today's digestible tip. Here is this week's digestible tip. Make sure that you sit down this month and organize all of the documents needed to file taxes. Get it all organized, all in one place, to make tax prep easier for 2017. And going forward, if you do your own taxes, make sure you read up on all these changes that were put in place. There's 1,100 pages of reform that just were approved. There's a lot in there. So make sure you keep up with the changes. And one other little tidbit was the tax rates, even though your tax rates were just lowered, it's more than likely the payroll services haven't been able to catch up and adjust. So you may be over withholding in 2018. So make sure to check up throughout the year to make sure that uh, you've corrected that. And now let's jump into the interview with John McCarthy. John, thank you so much for joining us. I uh, really appreciate you being here and taking out the time to talk with all of us and educate us a little bit more on this tax bill. Yeah, sure. Happy to be here, Ryan. So I first just want to kind of start out with just a high level of what did you see change with all these taxes and where do you think we may maybe should be highlighting throughout our discussion today? Yeah, sure. There was a number of significant changes. Uh, Congress gave us quite the Christmas present. Uh, we have about a mm-hmm. thousand pages of tax law with various changes through them, and we'll, we'll go through a few of them here. But 
you know, the key thing to remember is that uh, you know a lot of this uh, information is still waiting on IRS guidance at this point. Um, so while we have you know some answers for some things, uh, we still are waiting for a lot of clarification from the IRS at this point. So. Mm-hmm. If you could just kind of explain that real quick. So the tax bill came out, it got put into law, and then we're waiting for additional guidance. Can you just maybe explain that to people real quick? Yeah, sure. Congress gives us, uh, you know, kind of a blueprint for, for what they intended these tax law changes to be. But uh, unfortunately, Congress people aren't always tax experts. What we end up with is is some ideas on on how they would like these things to work, but really the the nuts and bolts of how tax preparers and tax professionals will apply these rules is really not settled until the U.S. Treasury Department and the IRS issue some additional regulations and help define some of these new terms and new ideas that we have in the tax law. So, you know, it can be several months before we have, you know, really final ideas on on how all of these things will work going forward. Mm -hmm. So if you could just, um, you know, go into a little bit more on the tax bill and, and what we're looking at now. So one of the biggest changes uh, that we saw was in the standard deduction area and itemized deductions and how those work with exemptions as well. So in the past, folks could choose the higher of their standard deduction or itemized deductions. So Everyone was allowed a standard deduction, um, and it varied depending on your filing type. But it could be, you know, it was sixty-three fifty for single folks in two thousand seventeen, and twelve thousand seven hundred for married folks. Um, so you could either take that, or if your itemized deductions were higher, you were able to take your itemized deductions. And your itemized deductions are things like mortgage interest, real estate taxes, um, state and local income taxes, and medical expenses, and things like that. So. Mm-hmm. You know, one of our biggest changes with the tax law is they completely redesigned um, this area for us. So we used to be able to take exemptions for the number of people that we were claiming on your return. So for yourself and your spouse and kids, exemptions are now gone and they've included them with the standard deduction now going forward. So the standard deduction amount has, has gone up to 12000 uh, for singles and 24000 for joint to help compensate for the loss of exemptions. And then we've also had a number of changes in the itemized deductions that, that people are able to take, too. And this has gotten a lot of press um, over the last several weeks as people were quickly uh, trying to make some payments towards the end of the year. And that's mainly because state and local income taxes as well as real estate taxes are now limited to $10,000 in a year. So that's quite a bit of a change from the past. And that $10,000 amount is the same whether you're single or married filing joint, um, which does catch people by surprise a little bit. Yeah, and that really punishes people that live in high cost of living areas like California or New York or somewhere like that where you might have an expensive house, which you know might be an affordable house in the Midwest, but you're paying you know all of uh, your property tax and insurance and all this stuff. And, and now you can't look at, it, it's basically capped at 10000 Correct. And, yep. and is that capped with the the taxes that you're paying through your state and that? Is it 10000 each or is it 10000 together? Yeah. So if, if you're um, filing a joint return, it's $10,000 for both of you. John, when do people look at itemizing like versus taking a standard deduction? How does one, if they're looking at their financial life and they're looking at, at everything and they're trying to do tax prep on their own, like when when should they look at itemizing versus the standard deduction? 
For the 2017 year, you would want to look at itemizing if you think that your itemized deductions are going to be higher than your standard deduction. Um, and for 2017, those amounts were 63.50 for individuals and 12,700 for uh, married filing joint. What you would do is look. Um, you're normally, if you own a home, you're going to have a, a form 1098 come out in the mail here soon. That'll list your mortgage interest, and sometimes it'll also list your real estate taxes on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you would add those things up as well as the state income tax withholding and any city tax withholding that you might have on your W-2s. Um, you add those together with any charitable contributions that you have. And if that number is greater than your standard deduction, um, then you would want to consider itemizing. Hmm. That's perfect. You know, looking at the standard deduction, I know we talked about it doubling and that the idea that you no longer can take these personal exemptions, does that end up hurting bigger families? Or does this new, I know we're, we're, we're probably going to get into it here, is the, the child tax credit. You know, it, does that end up offsetting this or how does that end up working? For most folks going forward, the child tax credit benefit um, to the new law is going to help to offset the loss of those exemptions. And that's because they've increased the child tax credit now from $1,000, how it will be here in 2017, to $2,000 going forward. Part of that credit is also refundable for lower income taxpayers. Mm. Um, so even if you don't have a tax liability, there's a chance you can still get a refund from some of that uh, from that child tax credit. Will that factor into whether they itemize or, or take the standard deduction? Yeah, the child tax credit is completely independent of whether you take the standard deduction or you itemize. Um, so as long as you've got kids, uh, you're eligible to take the child tax credit. And there's no phase out or is there a phase out with that? There is a phase out still, um, and here this is the area that's really going to help a lot of taxpayers um, where they weren't able to take a child tax credit in the past. Mm. So the phase out used to be between seventy five thousand of taxable income and one hundred and ten. That has been greatly increased to you know, two hundred thousand dollars for single individuals and four hundred thousand dollars for married filing joint. So a lot more people starting in twenty eighteen are going to be able to take the child tax credit. So assuming that you, let's say, have a household income of under 400000 you'll be able to actually take advantage of this $2,000 tax credit in addition to the expanded standard deduction. That should help offset to where families, without taking these personal exemptions on multiple kids and themselves, like that should offset what happened, right? Like mathematically, I'm trying to think about it in my head. That's what we're seeing in practice is that you know, for the vast majority of people, I think they're going to see a tax reduction. Um, there, there are certainly pockets of, of folks that could potentially pay more with the new tax law. But I, I think for most people, they're going to see a tax reduction. Well, I mean, that's the whole point of this. I, I don't know. I feel like they introduced more tax planning, like complexity, and they didn't really simplify the tax code. I just look at it. It just feels more difficult to understand. Yeah, there were, there were pockets of simplification. But overall, I would say that... Uh, while CPAs might have not necessarily been excited um, to have this tax law kind of dumped on them here at the last minute, it does provide a lot of job security for us going forward, especially for helping out our small business customers. Yeah. So you mentioned small business, and I do want to jump into the QBI in just a minute. But keeping with the child tax credit and the theme here, the 529s got a little uh, a benefit through this tax bill. And can you kind of explain how that ended up changing? Yeah, so we got a couple new wrinkles in, in the 529 uh, plan availability. Um, the, the biggest thing is that they opened up the 529s to be 
so you're eligible to pay expenses for primary and secondary education for your kids. And folks are allowed to distribute up to $10,000 per year per beneficiary for primary and secondary education costs, whereas you know, before it was limited to college costs. Mm-hmm. What about homeschooling? At the last minute, they ended up taking out the homeschooling availability. So in the earlier versions of the bill, they were going to include homeschooling uh, Mm. education costs uh, potentially in there, um, but it did not meet some of the restrictions to pass the bill. So they were stripped out at the last moment. Yeah. I mean, with the thousand page bill and so many like, you know, this is what they're planning to do. And then this is what they actually did. It's hard to keep up with what actually got signed in. Um, over the holiday. So I appreciate the uh, clarification there. So John, if your state has a deduction for contributing to a 529 plan, and you were already putting your kids into a private school, essentially, instead of just paying the school, you could fund the 529 and then have that come out and pay the, the education costs, correct? Now that they're able to, to pay the primary schools? Yeah, it's a good planning tool and one that we're, we're seeing you know, advisors uh, really key in on because really there's two main benefits of the 529 plan. And with college, when it was only eligible for college costs, you know, the main benefit was putting away money in a tax-deferred manner, meaning that you mm-hmm. wouldn't have to pay taxes on those earnings um, while that money sat there until your kids got to college. But now that we're able to use those funds for primary and secondary education, you know, for the states that allow a tax deduction for contributions to a 529, um, there's nothing preventing you from making a contribution on December 31st to get your state tax deduction and then pulling that money out on January 2nd to pay directly to the kids' uh, education costs. So it's a great way to get a, a state tax deduction. Um, there are a few states that don't have that benefit, um, so you're going to want to check with um, either your state's tax websites where there's some good 529 um, websites out there that uh, detail which states have those benefits and, and how much the benefits might be. Yeah, because one of the things when I'm looking at, you know, 529 plans and, and analyzing which plans are good and bad and all that is sometimes these things are like bloated with fees and terrible investments and all that. And so if your state had the deduction, but it had a terrible plan, then you would end up going somewhere else like Utah or New Hampshire or something or Nevada's plan. You'd end up choosing something different. But this kind of, to me, opens up the idea that, well, maybe your 529 that you're saving for college is opened up at, let's say, Utah and going through there, but you can fund your state's crappy plan to get that deduction and then immediately move it out. It just seems kind of like a, a weird loophole around bad plans. Yeah, that's a great point, Ryan. And that's something that, you know, it is always good to take advantage of and make sure that your state plan is reasonable in terms of fees. And that's something, obviously, you know, an advisor like you can help uh, clients with. Yeah, it just seems like, uh, you know, I get the 529 question a lot. And um, I just did an episode with Abby Chow from College Backers. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and check out that episode. Uh, They've got a great product around 529 plans that I actually have been using for my kids now. But yeah, it just looks like, you know, if, if your state had a bad plan now, I know states like, I think it's like Minnesota, where you can put it into any plan and still get the state deduction. But there's some states out there that say, no, it's our, it's our plan that you need to put in to get that deduction. It seems just like a little loophole around like being able to fund it there and then pay for your kids tuition. So I, I like that. Uh, you know, keeping along the same kind of lines here is, was there anything in the bill that would like help or hurt with respects to like student loan repayment or 
forgiveness on student loans? Yeah, there were a few new changes in the student loan area. For a while, we thought the student loan interest deduction might go away. Um, that one did survive the writing process. So student loan interest is still deductible. It phases out based on income, though. So depending on your income, for 2017, it phases out um, for singles between $65,000 and $80,000. Um, and for married filing joint, uh, phases out between one thirty-five and one sixty-five thousand. Mm. Um, so, you know, for the right person, uh, student loan interest deductions are still there, up to twenty-five hundred dollars. On the student loan discharge front, there was some changes made regarding student loans that are discharged due to death or disability. Those are no longer going to be considered taxable income in the in the unfortunate event um, that, that we have somebody in that situation. There were no changes to the, the uh, discharge um, provisions uh, around folks that are in IBR or pay or repay programs. Mm-hmm. Um, so we still need to do planning there um, if we think that that's going to be the, the situation because there could be still some taxable income implications for those. Okay. So, I mean, that that's nice that they helped out people through disability or death, that it's not taxable inside of there. So switching over to, we had alluded to how you can look at deductions for QBI. So if you don't mind, can you explain QBI, what it actually is, and the deduction now that has gotten kind of the press of the bill? Yeah, so this is one of the biggest changes with the tax bill, really because they're they're opening up a whole new area of tax law and and something that uh, is completely different than what we've experienced in the past. So. From a legislative standpoint, the, the QBI that we're talking about, this qualified business income deduction, was really a response to try to help put small businesses on the same type of tax advantage um, that they were newly giving to large C corporations or large multinational companies um, that have a new lower tax rate as well. The qualified business income deduction and from a very high level is basically offering up to a 20% deduction for business income that comes straight on the individual's return and helps reduce their tax liability. The qualified business income deduction, it has to have a business associated with it. So the IRS, or I should say when Congress wrote the rules, they're really trying to make sure that people are not abusing this particular provision of the tax law. So it's not going to include folks that are W-2 employees. Um, So there's no deduction for them. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is that it doesn't include your wages, um, even if you're working for a small business. Um, Let's say you're working for a a partnership uh, or an S-corporation or some other type of small business, um, and you're getting paid a salary or guaranteed uh, payments uh, from that company. The deduction's not going to apply to that. It's only going to apply to the other business income that's passed through to your return. So the distributions over and beyond your given salary for your work and compensation. Yeah, correct. And so how does the 20% deduction actually work? Uh, Maybe one level down from a high level. Is it above the line? Is it below the line? How does that actually work flowing down through the, is this just, I guess, explain more on how this actual 20% deduction works. From a tax return standpoint, it's going to be a deduction after adjusted gross income. Uh, So you can kind of think of it on the same lines of kind of where itemized deductions today are are deducted on the return. Um, That's kind of how this this qualified business deduction is going to work. 
Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not going to directly reduce your adjusted gross income, which does come into play quite a bit um, in other areas of the tax computation. Perfect. Well, is there anything else that we're missing out on this new tax bill? I know there was a ton of stuff in there, and I just wanted to highlight this conversation on on kind of the big key points. Is there any other big key points that you think we've kind of missed out on talking about? Well, I'll go back uh, real just real quickly to the, the qualified business income deduction, uh, mm-hmm. just as it pertains to your audience a little bit. Now, one of the things to keep in mind with this is that Congress has designated health professionals as well as tax accountants and and lawyers and a few other groups that they are excluded from some of the benefits of this qualified business income deduction. So there's a lot we don't know about how it's going to work yet. But, you know, if you are going to be making, you know, above 157,000 as a single person or 315,000 jointly in 2018, um, and you are part of a small business of health professionals. And, you know, this is one where you're probably going to want to see uh, your CPA or your tax professional going forward to see if this applies to you and, and how you can take advantage of it. Now, this is one of the areas that's so new that, that we don't know a lot about how it's going to work at this point. So we're waiting for some additional guidance, but it's one definitely to keep an eye on for next year. Yeah. And and that's a great little disclaimer or disclosure here is we don't know exactly how all this is going to play out. And so we could have tore apart more into the bill and went in the nitty gritty details, but it wouldn't have made sense because we still don't have the guidance to go through it. So maybe John, we'll have you back on uh, towards the end of the year uh, to go through once further guidance is out, maybe to explain a few extra things and see if there's any loopholes or anything that uh, all the CPAs have found. I know that you know, it's going to take them uh, months to figure out what we can do and not do. And now it's time for the curbside consult. So my first question is around 1099 income, the physicians that earn it. Is there anything in the tax bill that would cause them to change how they would either form their practice or basically how would they make changes around their practice to minimize their taxes? At this point, with the information that we know, I am not advising any clients to make any business entity changes um, based solely on the new law that we have, just because we don't know enough yet um, mm-hmm. to make those decisions. The Treasury Department is definitely going to have to write some regulations here, um, or there's going to have to be some technical fixes to the bill in order to get this all to work out correctly, I think, the way Congress intended. So. At this point, I would say it's premature to make any business changes um, unless you uh, have some other things going on in your business that makes sense to address at this point. And, you know, if you have a tax professional you're working with, then then, uh, I I would certainly talk to them about that. But right now, I wouldn't advise any changes until we we get a little bit more information. And based on what you're reading, you know, with that, again, good disclaimer of saying, you know, let's make sure we know what's actually going to happen. But based on what you've read and what you've seen, is there anything that would cause you to lean one way or another in terms of how they would organize? Most of the tax experts um, that, that I've read at this point have, have advised that we think the S corporation is still going to become kind of the vehicle of choice, um, which it has been for a number of years. The thing that we're waiting on some additional guidance for right now is that the plain letter wording of the law right now seems to put sole proprietors um, that are filing their income directly on their return as a Schedule C at a little bit of an advantage the way the laws are currently written. And there's there's some technical reasons for that. But we think that that's going to be addressed through some fine-tuning of the legislation here within the next couple months. 
but really until we have that final answer, we don't know for sure. Yeah, it makes complete sense. And I want to ask you one more quick question on this one, then we'll move to the next one. Is you had mentioned S Corp and that it's been kind of the vehicle of choice. Can you just explain a little bit about why it's the vehicle of choice and maybe even what is an S Corp? Yeah, so an S Corp is a, a legal entity type for tax purposes that we can elect into. The primary advantage for it um, is that we can have some of the earnings from the S corporation paid out as wages and subject to self-employment taxes. And then part of the earnings come out just as distributions that are still subject to income tax, but they're not subject to employment taxes like Social Security and Medicare. So there's generally a little bit of an advantage uh, to an S corporation over a, a you know sole proprietorship that would pay self-employment taxes on all of their income. Perfect. So the second question I have for you, John, is what can physicians do right now in 2018 to get ready for filing their taxes, either for 2017 or, you know, in prep for all the changes in 2018? Yeah, the first thing I I always mention is just to get organized um, this time of year. This is a great time to, to set aside a little bit of time, go through your financial transactions with really towards an eye towards, uh, you know, looking at it from a tax perspective. So, you know, look through everything and make sure you're keeping track of all of your mail that comes in over the next month or so as you get tax documents in and just set that aside in one place so you have uh, one central location to look for all those documents. As we move forward into next year, depending on your situation, uh, you know, if you're in a relatively small business, uh, I think you're going to want to see your CPA early and often. Uh, it's not just a, a, an advertisement for uh, CPAs everywhere, but uh, I think it's really going to be important this year uh, with all of the tax law changes. You know, don't contact them before April 15th with your tax planning. But shortly after that, I would say, you know, that's a good time to get in touch with your CPA, go over your tax situation and see if you can't bend some of these new laws to your benefit. That's great advice. And I, I kind of chuckled when you said don't do it before April 15th. For those that just think that CPAs do taxes and they're only busy from January 1st to April 15th, can you kind of just tell people like from a from a general standpoint, like, when should they start contacting CPAs to look at general planning advice, you know, for that current year? Like when are the best times? Yeah, the best time really starts in May um, after the CPAs have gotten a couple weeks uh, a breather after tax season. And then all the way up until September um, generally is a good time to, to reach out. Um, that's in between a lot of our tax filing deadlines. And that's the time where we really have uh, some time to sit back and actually do some tax planning for folks. I'm perfect. Well, John, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And if you could just tell people uh, where they can find you. Yeah, so I'm uh, available online at johnmccarthycpa.com. And that's my main website. Uh, we're, we're available. We're taking a few more clients here uh, for this tax season. Um, and we, uh, you can schedule directly online on our website. Uh, we're a totally virtual firm, uh, so we work out of multiple states. Um, but uh, we use a lot of technology to meet with clients, and we work with folks all around the U.S. Perfect. Well, thanks, John, again for being on the show. I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks, Ryan. All right. Well, thank you again, John, for being on the show. Listeners, I know that taxes is not the most favorable thing to listen to and hear, but you know, this stuff was really important. There's so many changes. It affects all of us. So John, thanks again for being on the show. One thing I didn't mention and John and I didn't talk about on the show was the concept of the backdoor Roth. And I know that this is a a very popular strategy for very good reasons. 
through the, throughout the physician finance community. But I want to let you guys know that this was left untouched in the final legislation so we can continue doing our backdoor Roths. Next week's show is going to be a curbside consult, but it's a little bit different. I was honored to be one of the expert panelists for the New England Journal of Medicine's Financial Planning 101 series. In that series, there was so many great questions that I feel like I should highlight some of them on the show. So I'm going to pick out four or five questions from that series, and then I'm going to give you guys my answers. I'll also link to it in the show notes of next week's show, so you guys can go read all of the questions, uh, as there was a, a lot of great questions asked. But yeah, next week, we are going to be doing a curbside consult with several questions from that New England Journal of Medicine's Financial Planning 101 series. So have a great rest of your week, and I'll see you guys next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Financial Residency Podcast. This episode is ended, but your financial residency continues online. Head over to financialresidency.com, where you'll find links to any resources mentioned in today's episode, along with other valuable tips and information that will help you regain your financial freedom. That's financialresidency.com.